Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Dr. Bia Labate, queer Brazilian anthropologist and executive director of the Chacruna Institute for Plant Medicines. She also serves as public education and culture specialist at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. If you're someone who keeps up with the developing world of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy, Chacruna is an organization that you're going to want to keep an eye on. I first found out about them in 2020 when I wanted to do a series of interviews that I ended up calling the Psychedelic Moment. You can go back in the archives and check them out. There's some really excellent interviews there. But my original thought was that I wanted to talk to a diverse range of folks within the psychedelic landscape. And through Chakruna, I found those folks and I found a pedagogy that was predicated around facilitating and creating conversations that could give voice to racial equity and gender diversity in a field that, as amazing as it is, has traditionally privileged white male voices. Chakruna has a robust schedule of conferences, panels, and community forums that center around shamanism, around ritual, religion, indigenous reciprocity, uh, drug policy, gender, the politics of psychedelic science, and they aim to create this bridge Right? They aim to create this bridge between traditional ceremonial use of psychedelics and the more scientific, clinical, and therapeutic perspectives. To me, they represent a desire to speak to the needs of all people within the realm of psychedelics. I'm such a fan of Dr. Labate's work and the perspective that she has spent her career championing. So it was really a thrill to get to speak with her in November of this year. Hi, Sam. Hi, everybody that is listening. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Bia, you are the executive director, creator of Chakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. At Chakruna, you promote reciprocity in the psychedelic community. You support the protection of sacred plants, cultural traditions. You advance psychedelic justice through curating these amazing conversations where you highlight the voices of women, queer people, indigenous people, people of color, people of the global South. What inspired you to create the Chakruna Institute? Well, it's a, in many ways a continuation of my entire career as an anthropologist, as a researcher. The, at the source of everything, it's my personal interests on plant medicines mm. and my personal inspiration for getting to know mushrooms and ayahuasca and peyote and since ever have been taking sacred plants or plant medicines and then decided to become a researcher and look at the cultural and historical, geographical, social aspects. For me, the interest in taking this sacred plants always came hand in hand with an intellectual curiosity around the traditions, the roots, the lands, the people, the music, the rites, the ceremonies. I was always very touched and felt very inspired by sitting in this context and learning the stories, the tales that come after ceremony are as just as juicy as the ceremonies itself. So I've always been interested in the whole cultural phenomena around it, which led me to study. I was already an anthropologist and I had always been interested in different cultures and different traditions. And so I started to become an anthropologist and do research we're professionally curious people to study human interaction. I've always liked to travel a lot since early age, and I've always been quite adventurer and like to backpack. And so for me, it was a chance to, to unite, you know, my eagerness to explore, my curiosity, my spiritual hunger, and my fascination with culture 
and all blended together in making this the central topic of my career and very mixed with my personal life as well. So you're from Brazil. Where are you from Brazil? I am from Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is a huge megalopolis. And so I've been kind of a very urban creature. But as I said, I've always liked to travel and explore things. And I've always liked a lot team things. I, I belong to an organization that was a youth leaders organization that aimed to create global peace and education. Mm. So they had different activities for children and teenagers uh, where they got people together to talk about different cultural issues. And back in the time, there was no internet and international travel was not so easy. So I got a chance at the early age to do a lot of traveling. And I was a young leader. I traveled to many countries at young age and did a whole trajectory in this organization, which led me to this interest in other cultures and also traveled a lot inside Brazil. I also liked a lot Politics, I, as, as a young person, wanted to be a politician for many years. However, when I studied, I, I got into social sciences, I thought I wanted to study political science. In Brazil, the career is anthropology, political science, and sociology. And I got in because of my interest in politics. And I was uh, always kind of the leader representative of the class and I got into university thinking I was more interested in politics and this kind of diplomacy and sort of warfares, <laughs> public relations. But I, 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 I fell in love with anthropology and then I, I geared my interest more towards anthropology than sociology or political science. you were 26, you took ayahuasca within the context of the ayahuasca churches in Brazil. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about these Brazilian churches like Santo Daime and when they originated and why they might have originated. Yeah, I took ayahuasca for the first time in the context of the Union do Vegetal. That was in the around this month, November, the Day of the Dead, uh, around that time. It was very fascinating, and I had a really strong experience. It kind of really blew my mind away. And I, I had a whole journey throughout the existence of the universe where I could really feel I, I had seen the entire way that the universe was created and why we were here, like in a kind of painting or something, like explanation, like some kind of murals, like when you visit ruins and you see these murals, like de depicting scenes. I saw that, uh, but a very long one with the whole history of everything. And I, I sort of thought I, I understood everything. And it was funny, you know, I was so young and had also that kind of purity. I think when you're younger, frequently more idealistic and wanting to do a revolution and wanting to change the world and having all these hopes and dreams. And I think more... Yeah, naivete in your heart, but a good one. Uh, and so I, I told them that I had understood everything, which they laughed, of course. <laughs> and then I said, I wanted to go to the Amazon. You know, I said, I'm ready. I want to go because I kind of already sensed that this was being done in the, this is was in the south of Minas Gerais. But I could tell that this came from the Amazon and this was from indigenous people and that there was a whole history around it. Mm -hmm. So I thought I, you know, I might as well to do a shortcut and go directly to the source. 
and it's still a lot one of the main advice that I get I give to people. I got a lot of people asking me questions about their career and what should they do and what is my advice. And I, I think if you're really interested in this, you know, it's a path that you have to learn firsthand. Do these churches integrate Christianity with indigenous tradition? Yeah, the main churches that exist in Brazil are uh, Santo Daime, União do Vegetal, and Barquinha. And they all kind of depart from the sort of same cultural matrixes, if you will. So, uh, of course, indigenous shamanism, what some researchers called Amerindian thoughts and practices, mm. and Christianity, and then Afro-religions from Brazil, Umbanda and Candomblé, and European esotericism, uh, trends that were common in, in Europe in the 19th century and then migrated to other countries, like both spiritual cardicism and, and other kinds of theosophy and other influences. And they created different sorts of rituals that are kind of syncretic or hybrid and that have different expressions. And there's a rich cultural tradition around all of them. They have different founders and they have different times that they, they were founded. And they also have different dialogues between themselves. And from that beginning, started more or less in the 30s in the Amazon. And then, uh, you know, later on on the 50s and 60s and different branches expanded and went, migrated to the bigger cities on the southeast, such as Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, Brasilia, other cities. And when these religiosities that are originally from rubber tappers and rural people uh, in the northern Amazonia areas of Brazil expand to big cities, they combine themselves with a lot of urban forms of therapy and spirituality mm. and pursues for healing and, and self-knowledge. And so a multiplicity of phenomena exploded in big cities. And around the year 2000 and something, uh, more or less the beginning of 2000s, 2003 or four or five indigenous people inside Brazil that also have their own practices started to get out of their villages and migrate and, and offer itinerant ceremonies at the beginning, very kind of discreet and you know, just like one or two families, but now this has been over 15 years. And so there's also an explosion in that. So there's a, a, also an indigenous circuit carrying different ceremonies. So some uh, Hunikwin or Kashinawa uh, or Yawanawa and other ethnicities that started to, to go around. And a lot of times they go through the circuit of the religions that are friendly to ayahuasca. Mainly Santo Daime is the most open one and receive different, uh, they're called comitivas or groups of people that travel mm. and then offer different ceremonies. And, and these groups also, both the Daime and the UDV expanded to the United States and to Europe. And indigenous people from Brazil are also doing their tours abroad. And so it's really dynamic and ever evolving landscape of ayahuasca expansion. Thank you so much for that primer and kind of understanding the syncretic nature of those churches. Were you brought up in the church? My family is Catholic and I was baptized and did first communion, but I'm not very Catholic anymore. Or never was, but... Culturally, let's say I am. 
No, the, the, the thing is, it's interesting to think about this idea of integrating the kind of indigenous roots of ayahuasca experience with here in, in this sense, it was integrated with Christianity, right? And a lot of the work that you do with Chakruna is underscoring the importance of integrating this traditional indigenous wisdom with today's contemporary psychedelic science. What do you feel is inspiring at the moment or the deepest purposes that Chakruna is pushing forth in this moment? Yeah, well, Chakruna has different branches, as you, you said yourself. So we have our project that is called the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas. We have a network of 17 groups that we, we give grants to. You know, we give small grants, 3,000, 5,000. And the criteria to be a part of these groups, of this of this initiative, is, is groups that are Indigenous-led and that have their own track record of contributions, so they have done their own work on different areas, on food sovereignty, on water, on defense of right, of land rights, or preservation of language, of music, of cultural traditions. So projects that are not just related to psychedelics, and they, they are not exactly groups that are in this big circuit of the Global North nonprofit complex, so to speak, so they are kind of smaller big enough to have a big to, to have a bank account and some kind of means of communication and have a, a strong track record and are not just one family or one individual but that have a collective organization so those are the criterias to participate in our initiative and many of these are friends and belong to to our networks and we're people that we we have contacts as doing our field work we also try to up, uh, support them for them to run their operations. So it's not like grants for a specific project, but grants for the organization per se, which is very important because a lot of small organizations struggle a lot <laughs> to pay personnel and to pay regular fees. And, you know, a lot of philanthropists mean really well, but they want to tell people what to do or make people create projects that sound appealing to them because they don't want to fund certain things. So our project is to support indigenous people on their own terms, their rights for self-determination and sovereignty, their rights to choose how they want to support their money. Also, you know, there's a lot of discussion about things being indigenous-led. I want to emphasize that our organization supports efforts that are indigenous-led. So we're not trying to tell indigenous people what to do or guide their actions. What about your other program, Psychedelic Justice? So Psychedelic Justice has two hubs. One is the racial stuff and the other the gender stuff. So basically, Chukruna tried to complexify the rhetoric on psychedelics and add a conversation about race and about gender that was largely missing. Of course, we're not the only person to do this and nobody invents everything. Everything is, you know, collective in many ways. But I do think that we had a very important and pioneering role. So one of the branches we have dedicated a lot of work to we call queer in psychedelics, which was mainly to talk about the intersection between the queer movement and the psychedelic movement. Mm -hmm. So how can psychedelics help heal queer people and 
queer folks have a lot of challenges and those suffer from an, often from internalized shame and homophobia and taboos and have high rates of this depression, anxiety, and all kinds of problems. A lot have missed families and cannot, you know, have had so many challenges. And so can psychedelics help people with those kinds of issues? And also, what are the special needs of these populations? And uh, is it important that they have spaces that are geared towards them and towards their own uh, needs? And how can they feel safer and, and join these containers? Also, there's a big discussion in psychedelic therapy, you know, to think about uh, this pair, men and women, as a therapist and repeats a lot of the stereotypes of gender, essential, making essentializing gender and essentializing the role of men and women and sometimes lacking a therapist that will be uh, understanding to different expressions of gender identity and sexuality and you know we we have done two conferences on this topic and we launched an important book called queer psychedelics from oppression to liberation also looking at the past of some what my colleague and co-editor alex belzer calls our skeletons in the closet of the psychedelic movement which was early research attempts to do conversion therapy with psychedelics, trying to change people's sexual orientation with psychedelics. Can you tell me a little bit about the attempt to bring conversations about race to the dialogue around psychedelics? We created a series of resources and educational materials that we offer for free, trying to raise awareness about minorities and their voices. So we have, for example, a page called People of Color Making a Difference in Psychedelic Healing, and it's a, a resource that have bios and photos of different folks with different contributions. And so they can diversify their pool of speakers in conferences or in media or in documentaries or in different projects. So we have helped create a lot of diversity and equity in the field. We have another video that we, we called uh, Debunking Myths from the Psychedelic Community, which is this idea that, you know, we are all the same and we are all one and why should we fight or, uh, you know, only the people that are talking about race, they are racist. And no, it's not exactly like that. Like racism exists and needs to be acknowledged. And it's not by not talking about it that you were going to change this. I am going to play a few minutes from this video entitled Chakruna Debunks Six Racist Myths from the Psychedelic Community. And the voices featured are those of Monica Williams, Nicole T. Buchanan, and Darren Smith. A lot of spaces are, are not really composed of a lot of diversity when it comes to people. Like people don't look like me, people don't look like my, my friends. Um, that might be black or might be trans or, or, or might be Hispanic. Just look around at the movement, um, look at the organizations, the professional organizations, the research organizations, and look at who is running those and who's in charge. Look at the, the race and ethnicity of the, the senior scientists and the lead therapists and the CEOs and the board members. And you can certainly see that it's nowhere, nowhere near representative of the diversity of our country. Despite people of color being the global majority, 
Psychedelics trials have been limited almost exclusively to white people, led by white people, designed by white people. The psychedelic community is still as racist as any other community, with an exception of the expanded consciousness that I indicated for earlier. It might pro provide greater empathy, but the, the way in which skin color uh, pervades our consciousness and how, it, how, it, how it's been played out historically, um, you know, um, you're not exempt. Nothing is apolitical. To, to define yourself as being outside of politics generally just means that you have bought into the politics to the extent to which they benefit you, and you're ignoring the ways in which they don't benefit others. I, and me, I'm an academic. And in clinical science, there's long been this argument that our research should be neutral, that good science is unbiased. But the reality is that all good science in that model does is it ignores the way in which it is inherently biased. And psychedelics is no better and no different. If we are doing the work from a stance of neutrality, neutrality is a political stance. Well, at first I would say that in a sense we are all one. I mean, we're all made of the same stuff. We're all on the same planet. Our fates and futures uh, are bound together. So in that sense, yes, we're all one. Um, but at the same time, we're not all treated the same. Race is not biological, it certainly is not genetic, but it is absolutely real when we put it in the context of a social construct that has power and then can determine people's lives. It's not like, it's not like these, 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 uh, these identities that we put, place, put so much emphasis on um, you know, don't exist. They do exist. And people identify themselves through these particular categories. And so to ignore them and not address the elephant in the room, again, is problematic. It ignores and erases aspects of a person's history. I'd be very curious to know who are the people that say that their psychedelic journey has nothing to do with race. And I'm be willing to bet that it's people that are relatively privileged, certainly privileged along the lines of race, but potentially privileged along many other lines as well, where they don't have marginalized identities that get, um, that, that become part of the focus during their psychedelic journeys. Whereas a person of color who's going through a psychedelic trip, right, would have, potentially have to deal with or, or to call into the center of their mind experiences that have happened to them because of their race. Because my experiences with people of color is that when they are in that healing space with psychedelic medicines, there are themes directly relevant to their marginalized identities that come forward. That their healing around painful histories around race come forward. That their healing around events that may have been race-based where they were done harm, that's part of the work. But not talking about race doesn't make it go away. We have to really embrace it. We have to really understand it because that's, after all, humans created it. So we have to sort of get ourselves out of it. And one of the ways we do it is by sharing information, uh, reading, reflecting, having deep, uh, uh, important conversations. It, it would behoove the psychedelic community, I believe, to embrace these categories, if nothing more, to um, uh, upend them. So we have created, you know, also a special journal edition talking about numbers, like the fact that it's like only two or three percent of black therapists, uh, uh, either psychiatrists or, or clinical psychologists exist. And so it's important to 
to give a training to therapists on how to be mindful with populations of color and why should we pay our speakers of color and how can we bring indigenous people to conferences and not tokenize them or not promote what some called indigenous washing. And, you know, we launched a few different workshops on racial bias and all that kind of work. So basically the program, we also have a book called Psychedelic Justice. It's a trilogy. We have the Queering Psychedelics, Psychedelic Justice, and we have another one called Women in Psychedelics that we're planning to launch in February. So the whole spirit of this um this work is to help rewrite the narratives that the psychedelic field tells itself. So there's a certain way to tell the story that emphasizes a lot the researchers, the biomedical advancements, uh, the medical potentials. And this obscures other parts of the story that have been other, other forms of healing, other people that are leading this healing. You know, I like to talk a lot about this example, for example, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when some of the early research was coming out and a lot of people, a lot of uh, researchers were doing their experiments and their wives, they were helping, you know, they help interview the people, they help set up the, the research design, they help take care of the people during the, the experiment, they help follow up with the, uh, with the people, they help their husbands that also were afraid and scared of psychedelics, they had uh, huge roles frequently in doing all of those research, but all of these voices, they did, they don't come up in the research publications, they don't come up in the final acknowledgements, and uh, so they are invisible voices, they are voices that have received less attention, the, the caretakers, or other forms of healing, uh, the whole role that ceremony and indigenous shamanism has played in, in, in the creation of the psychedelic movement. Again, there's different sources for the psychedelic movement, but for sure, there's a huge continuity between shamanism and the underground and the above ground and the therapies. Uh, you know, the way that psychedelic therapies exist today are largely legatory of indigenous people's knowledge and practices. The very word psychedelics uh, has some legacy of researchers sitting in ceremonies with Native Americans. So Chukruna is trying to create a counter-narrative uh, that is different than this sort of salvationist, mainstream, white male, biomedical, reductionistic one. Again, we don't think, we, we think that there is a role for that, but that is the where all the majority of the attention and funding goes. And a lot of us don't feel very represented. I myself, as a queer immigrant woman, Latin, don't feel very identified with those narratives. Also felt quite oppressed in this field as a queer person. Uh, and Chukruna has this uh, helped me. It has in many ways been a support for my own development. Hi everyone, I want to tell you about Chakruna's annual spring conference on plant medicines and psychedelic science. It's called Psychedelic Culture 2024, and it will continue Chakruna's tradition of exploring cutting-edge themes that are largely absent from the mainstream psychedelic conversation. This is going to happen April 27th and 28th in San Francisco at the Brava Theater Center. 
And at this two-day in-person event, there will be panels and experiential opportunities that will create conversations around a host of juicy topics, including indigenous voices, indigenous reciprocity, biocultural conservation, religion and psychedelics, holding mindful ceremony, legislation reform, law and policy, racial equity and access, queering psychedelics, women in psychedelics, veteran leaders in psychedelics, disabled populations in psychedelics, perspectives from the global south, critical reflections on psychedelic science, including psychedelic-assisted therapy, sexual abuse, touch and ethics, and dialogues between neuroscience and shamanism. So really a whole host of topics here. There's also gonna be a space for participation in music and meditation circles, as well as hape ceremonies. Some of the great presenters will be Monica Williams, Nicole T. Buchanan, Bia Bate, of who you know from this conversation, David Bronner of Dr. Bronner's Soap, Rick Doblin of MAPS, Mia Sarno, Joe Moore, Joseph McCowan, and Dr. Wondria Pennington-Wasio. So come join at the beautiful Brava Theater. It's a co-op led by women in the traditional Latin neighborhood of San Francisco. Come for a memorable experience where diverse voices will combine intellectual vision, community activism, heart, and soul. Go to chakruna.net to register and learn more. Yeah, this idea of a counter-narrative, it's so important. And you have done, you've been so successful in creating this, like a, a deep sort of counter-narrative that, that you've put a, a great deal of time and, a, and, and effort into molding this, this sort of thing that it's just, I don't know, it's really impressive and useful, I would say, because, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but oftentimes that narrative I teach about the history of altered states at Esalen, and it's sort of this litany of white male voices, white male contributions, where there's obviously, there's so much more than that, but there's this idea of like a Mount Rushmore or something like that of the people of like, Leary came to Esalen and Ramdas came to Esalen and, and there was Huxley, you know, it's almost like as if like LSD was created in 1960 or something like that and given like <laughs> like a Eucharist unto the people and it all unfolded from there and, you know. Well, I love to hear that and it warms my heart because that's exactly what I think. And, you know, it's very hard to translate our work into funding and it's very hard to show philanthropists and donors what is the impact of this because it's hard to measure and it's hard to show quantify i you know but it's like it's like changing the tone of the conversation it's creating a whole other series of of sensibilities and of talk so chakruna is really like a trampoline yeah. of ideas and people uh, things we launch in our platform you know change change the entire field so uh, i love that again we we didn't invent this topic of queer people taking psychedelics. Uh, but, you know, this topic was latent and we kind of catalyzed this this feeling that exists and it was not very well organized and we help bring all of this together and then launch this in a huge scale. So today I was in this um, very mainstream kind of startup and, and, and more commercial conference called Miami Wonderland uh, one week ago and they had a space for queer circles you know, so it's like today all conferences have some kind of space for queer voices. 
And that is exactly part of what we do. Another good example is we started raising issues around the topic of sexual abuse in ayahuasca ceremonies in 2012 or so. And we have launched these guidelines to talk about raising awareness uh, around the issue. And we have published it in 14 languages. We have some legal resources. We went to a bunch of uh, conferences and to Peru to different retreat centers and restaurants and touristic spots trying to set these guidelines. And I feel this topic has been largely incorporated by the ayahuasca community. These days, people go to a retreat and they have a challenge. They come and they speak out. When we started talking about this, there was a huge taboo, a huge underrepresentation, a huge shame and guilt. And people were afraid that talking about this would endanger the status of ayahuasca. When it actually helps create a more accountable and healthier movement, because if people, uh, all these problems happen, the tra- the levels of trauma and, and, and repercussion are huge. It's much better for the movement to have self-accountability and self-organize and, uh, you know, be structured in a way to avoid these things, to, to have more protection and to have more safe space for people to report. And we continue doing the same topic. I, I was You asked me about the main work of Chukruna. I forgot to mention the third part. So we have indigenous reciprocity, psychedelic justice, and the third program we called Protection of Sacred Plants and Cultural Traditions. And this has been largely uh, trying to help plant medicine communities to self-organize and to get more awareness, what some people call psychedelic churches or sacramental medicines or uh, sacred plant uh, organizations. There's different ways to call it. We practice what we call legal harm reduction. So we have, we teach people how to self-organize and how to create best practices. We have launched a very important resource on best practices and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So what is a religion? How can you organize yourself as a religion? How do you keep track of your sacrament? Where do you keep it? Who has access to it? Is the door locked or not? What are your doctrines or how do you transport it? How do you keep track of people that come? What are your spiritual beliefs? What are your calendars? And so we have helped people keep track of this. And we have given a few workshops uh, about this topic. And also we keep monitoring what happens with different legal cases. And we have published around it, you know, during COVID, there was a high spike in arrests of in confiscation of ayahuasca by the government. And we kept, you know, track of that. And we, we, we offer spiritual, legal, and uh, emotional, technical support for people that have encont- encounters with law enforcement. And we have been keeping track of all of the cases, you know, the main litigation cases in the United States. We have helped the Church of the Ego and the Counter to put together a legal team and do a fundraising of $50,000. And they are currently suing the United States government for their right to use ayahuasca. If they win, that's going to be very influential because it's going to be the first church outside of the model uh, of UDV and Santo Daime, which are like Christian churches, as we were speaking. They are the only churches that have a legal right in the United States. And so this other church has a very important role because it can potentially open the door for many of those. 
And more recently, we also filed an amicus curiae for a church that got their status as a religion denied by the IRS because the IRS said that this church consumes a Schedule One substance. So it's a kind of a circularity that, you know, you are a religion if you have a status of religion. To obtain that status, you need to prove that you're a religion. And this kind of uh, play that exists between different organizations, different government organizations and, and, and branches, uh, where, you know, you still have a lot of taboo and a lot of problem around the idea of psychedelics. I, I myself, when I wanted to open the bank account of Chukruna, I was denied in three or four banks because of the word psychedelics. And it's considered like falls into federally illegal things like marijuana. And so we couldn't even open a bank account. Even in Instagram or Google ads, you still face all of these challenges. We had our Instagram account shut down twice. Uh, you know, we have our our Google ads grant that we get as a nonprofit was boycotted because the word chakruna is considered a drug. And in their book, we couldn't get our ads out and there continues to be a lot of stigma a lot of taboo a lot of misunderstanding that have a, a religious and moral dogma behind it yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about suing on behalf of the churches and such and i think about this kind of legal point of view reminds me very much of the tactics of maps and rick doblin it makes me think you're taking a page out of his book but then i realize you also you're part of maps yes i i also have a job in maps but i am today here speaking on behalf of chakruna and myself of maps what do you think about the the possibility when I you know when I think about what's what's going on like the possibility of MDMA being legalized for therapeutic purposes in 2024 does that open up like a hope for you that ayahuasca too could be eventually uh, legalized or sanctioned by FDA in the United States for for therapeutic purposes? Yes, I think. Uh... Of course, we would all like to see this prohibition going away. It's not good for anybody. I think a lot of uh, the narrative has been we're going to advance the therapeutic uses and through therapy and then open up for other kinds of uses. So this idea that we first had cannabis uh, and it was first for therapeutic uses and then this sort of opened up for recreational uses a lot of people in the psychedelic movement think that the advancing of MDMA and medicalization of psychedelics will then open the door for other kinds of uses. I think, of course, it's it's a good thing and that, that it will bring healing to people and help reduce the moral stigma. However, the religious route is also a route in itself, and it also has a lot of potential in itself. I think what is happening that people did not anticipate was two things. One is how the, you know, organically the psychedelic community created all these decriminalization bills. So the scientists, they had a plan. Let's first do the therapeutic, let's regulate through FDA, and let's have this be rescheduled and, and then we'll talk about other things. But organically, that's not what happened because there has been a movement uh, to decriminalize psychedelics all over the U.S. 
of course, that's not the same as legalizing, and it's still illegal on many of the, you know, on trade and on selling, on transporting. A lot of things are still illegal. Uh, but this is one thing that happened. And the other thing that happened is that the religious route has become stronger, and it's penetrating also mainstream religions in the United States. So there has been an interesting effervescent blossoming of different religious interests in psychedelics. We held our com- ourselves this um, conference called Religion and Psychedelics. And so we are seeing different, you know, we had different Christian organizations. Uh, Chikrina launched a series of Muslim and psychedelics through our Instagram because we have one young Muslim woman that got interested in that. And then we, you know, see an explosion of the psychedelic churches. And through our work, we're doing a workshop now, teaching people how to better self-organize and their religious rights. But not just the rights, but their obligations. Because with rights, obligations come. We're also doing a, a workshop on eco-chaplaincy, talking about, you know, there is a today a high level of anxiety about environmental issues and the future of the planet and mental health and stability and the the search for new kinds of rituals more meaningful new ways to get married or to get buried <laughs> to die to separate uh, the right to give birth in certain ways or to be buried on directly on the land and so this intermix between environment spirituality and psychedelics there's all of these other things that need to happen and that will happen independent or on the side of the mainstreaming and the legalization train, so to speak. And even in the legalization train, there's, again, a disproportionate amount of funds and attention to, like, let's let's bring MDMA or let's uh, try to help veterans or try to legalize for PTSD, but much less discussion on ethics, on the problem of uh, abuses, of projection, transfer, counter-transference, ego wars, and also very little still dialogue with indigenous people about healing modalities. We just published an article in Natural Mental Health called um, Indigenous Shamanism and Psychedelic Science, an Urgent Dialogue. Uh, The first author was Adana Omagua Kambeba. She's an indigenous woman from Brazil, is a medical doctor and an activist, and she also works in a with midwives in a hospital in Belo Horizonte and we we were making the case for this so you can have legalization and PTSD but there's so many dialogues that needs to happen and so many voices uh, that are not heard that are important to to come to the forefront recently at Esalen. You took part in a conference for the Center for Theory and Research, is that right? I was recently in Esalen for the first time, and I was invited to participate in the conference Indigenous Plant Medicine Movements. I was delighted to meet the Murphy family and the founders, Mike and Dulcie, uh, 93 and 86 years old. And I was uh, really fascinated to see them. They sat through the whole workshop, (laughs) three entire days. I approached her and I said, 
I don't know how much how you have patience to sit through this whole thing. And she said, me neither. <laughs> and later on, I approached him and I said the same thing. I said, I, I don't know how at this point of your life, 93, you have patience to sit around three entire days on a conference. And he said, me neither. <laughs> so I thought they were really uh, incredible people and also like so... Uh, you know, fit, and I was asking tips about longevity, and I had a great time uh, picking their brains about this topic, and I want to give a shout out to Ezelin that has been a place that so many important conversations started, and a lot that exists in the world today in terms of progressive therapies and expressions, you know, of self-transformation come from Ezelin. Thank you for that, and it's so wonderful that your voice, the voice of Chakruna, is included in this ongoing discussion about psychedelics for the diversity that it brings, for the diversity of experience that it calls in. And I think that Eslan does a really good job in curating these discussions as of late. And absolutely, one of the pieces that's so critical to bring in is everything that you're bringing forward, whether it's the edgy conversations that you're curating, whether, you know, bringing up point of views that people don't necessarily consider, like peyote conservation is something else that Chakruna has put forward. And just highlighting, again, the voices of women, the voices of queer people, voices of indigenous people. And Chakruna just does a terrific job of highlighting worthy people with worthy conversations. So the appreciation is is mutual for sure. Yeah, we're trying to do that. And at the same time, you know, we promote, have social justice and be progressive, but keep the compassion and, you know, try to avoid this big polarization. And I think things got pretty heated in the United States and with COVID and so much, so much of, you know, the awful politics going on around the globe. And there's a lot of, of anger and a lot of frustration. And we're trying to, to advance these conversations, but with kindness and with compassion and really believing the power to, break, to building bridges and creating dialogue trying to show that talking about minorities uh, is not about creating division or creating hate or creating separation, but we can't have true inclusivity and, 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 and wholeness and, and a global community if we don't acknowledge those differences and we don't do anything to use our power and privilege to elevate those needs. And so we're trying to help tell the story in other ways, and but also keeping the magic and keeping the fun. And we like to bring our Latin vibe. You know, we come from countries that very much enjoy making jokes and having fun. And we very much enjoy team spirit and being together, kind of like believing the power of being together. The Chukruna team is very united. We have about 13 people that have been working for several years together. And we try to go to different conferences and have opportunity to be together. And we, we have also a big network of volunteers, about 70 people. And we like people to hang out together. And we also can occasionally, in legal settings and voluntarily, have the chance to take psychedelics, sacred plants together, sit together in ceremony and learn and learn from each other and um, experience firsthand the power of the sacred plants, and we have a membership system. Uh, we're very much always looking for supporters, for people that want to join this movement. We also try to 
you know, give a prominence to students and young leaders. Um, myself, 52, and my partner is 63 years old, and we kind of feel that we are going towards the, you know, older age, older phase of our life, acknowledging that the world has changed a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in the new generations, in Gen Zs and millennials, and they're much more openness to to issues of gender and, and race and social justice. And also just trying to keep the pace in trying to have uh, ways of delivering knowledge that are more dynamic. We have a lot of emphasis on social media, on videos, infographs, reels, short clips, the importance to create materials that are more dynamic, that make more sense to younger generations that, you know, are easier to get, uh, articles that are shorter. And so we're trying to walk the talk, create an organization that values learning languages. We have a program to teach people to learn other languages, an exchange program. We also try to do swaps and get uh, exchange for our staff to go to different retreats and have experiences. And so we value very much having firsthand experience as part of a right to work in Chikruna and uh, trying to create an organization that is more horizontal, that imbibes uh, the psychedelic ethos. How can we create an organization that you know, is more horizontal, is more democratic, and that has values mental health and, and values sacred plants and at the same time has accountability and people still have to have deliveries and produce and, and come come with outcomes. And so all of that is is part of what we're trying to do. I very much welcome the time and the space you gave me here today. Dr. Villalabate, thank you so much for this gracefully put and extremely useful overview of what's going on at Chakruna. Uh, the website is chakruna.net. That's C-H-A-C-R-U-N-A.net. Uh, there you'll find a lot of information, a lot of guidebooks, uh, pamphlets, uh, their complete bibliography. Uh, there's lots of books available, lots of videos that you can go to and watch some of the conferences that they've given. And there you'll be able to sign up for Psychedelic Culture. 2024, as well as the membership circle that Dr. Labate mentioned. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, everybody. See you. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Music. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org. <laughs>